Hello, and welcome to the Communication Solution Podcast. Here at IFIOC, we love to talk communication. We love to talk motivational interviewing, and we love talking about improving outcomes for individuals, organizations, and the communities that they serve. Today, we've got Casey Jackson on the line, John Gilbert, and I'm Tammy. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MI guys here. We have our team as usual, and this time again, we have our very special guest, Steve Wool. If I'm saying that right, I know <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I mess that up. Um, but anyhow, Steve, welcome back, and thank you for coming back. Oh, my my pleasure. Glad to join you guys again, and and love the the opportunity. So appreciate you guys having me on the team. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Steve, what I want to dive in with this is, you know, after we wrapped last time. the first thing you said is, gosh, we didn't even get into the active shooter side of this. And I think that is so predominant right now, unfortunately. Um, You know, I just know you've had multiple experiences. And I think even launching this, what I want to really look at and kind of lay the foundation for is walking down that path between compliance and behavior change. Because even as we tee this up, we talked about it quite a bit last time, but I just think I think from my mind, it helps me from a social worker really bridge that gap that we talked about last time between, you know, that the behavioral side of it, law enforcement side of it, community safety, you know, civilian safety, officer safety, like just, I think it's just such a complex issue that people try to oversimplify. And if we're going to start from a simple place, I just want to start from that place of kind of compliance versus behavior change and why law enforcement has to go on the paths that they have to just for, for reasons that most of us don't even comprehend. Um, and then the way that your brain continues to keep trying to expand, how do we make this as effective as possible with the best possible outcomes for everyone? So I just want to start from there as we walk down this path, but I just want to kind of set that tone for, for people listening as well, too, that this is just so wildly complex and I don't want to feel like it gets oversimplified either. So, but so, so what were some of your thoughts as we we're wrapping up and the, the things you were thinking, like, I just wish we could have, had a chance to touch on this a bit more. Yeah. You know, I think with MI, Casey, you're always looking for behavioral change and looking for the way to get in to people who are in crisis. With active shooters, a lot of times we are called when the violence is is going on and we have got to stop or neutralize that threat. And we don't always get the opportunity to sit and talk with um, the person in crisis to hopefully and the situation, the bad situation, in a way that would be beneficial to all involved. Uh, a lot of times we show up after the fact, unfortunately, and not always do we get that opportunity. I had mentioned in previous conversations with you guys uh, about a shooting, a school shooting we had here in Spokane. Boy, it's, it's going on 20 years, probably 18 to 20 years ago at Lewis and Clark High School. And so I was a part of a specialty team that showed up to that situation. And ultimately we ended up having the opportunity to sit and engage and and talk with a young man who was going through some, some real crisis in his life. And look back now and I think to myself, had we had your training, Casey, could we potentially have altered or could we have maybe got those, those hooks that we needed to help him prior to him forcing a, a shooting. He was troubled and he uh, ended up forcing law enforcement to shoot him 
uh, which is which is devastating for for everybody involved, not only uh, him but his family, but the law enforcement as well, because that's not the outcome that we look for. In a perfect world, we would uh, utilize the tools that you have trained us with, Casey, and tr- and tools that we've taken through different courses, and we would have a better outcome. Not always is that going to happen, but right. we're always looking for that, especially now. Anytime we engage with somebody in a, a negotiation or a somebody that's going through crisis, we're looking to end it in a way that is mutually beneficial for, for those involved and, and police. So I think that's big, is looking at, at how now MI can change those active shooters where we have a chance to talk with them. What was the scenario? How'd that play out? I mean, what was the, for as much as you can share about it, I mean, what, how did that situation play with that youth? Like what had happened? Was there anybody else that was harmed in that? Or how did that, how did the situation unfold? Yeah. So he going through definitely mental health issues and later diagnosed mental health issues. He had taken a firearm. I believe it belonged to his father and had gone to Lewis and Clark high school in the morning, ended up going into a, like a science wing and fired off some rounds um, and kept some, some people in a, in a classroom for a time. They were eventually able to escape. Police were called. A fire alarm was pulled. We responded once we got the call that uh, it actually was an active shooter where we had a young man with a gun inside the school. And we were able to, with uh, security and everything, we were able to lock him down into one hallway of this, of this science lab. He ended up barricading the room. But after a time, we had a couple negotiators from our team um, at the time who were able to get a dialogue with him through a doorway. He would, he would come and go, but he was uh, definitely in the pits of despair that day. He just kept wanting to force an encounter as he wanted to take his life. So tr- truly, I don't believe he was there to hurt other people, but wanted to force a deadly encounter with law enforcement. And so we had an opportunity to, for an extended period of time, to talk with him face-to-face kind of down the hallway. And he would he would kind of go through those times where he'd be up and then he'd come back down. We were able to, to kind of bring him back down and have him a little bit of rational talk with him. And then he would get very irrational. Ultimately, uh, the negotiations broke down, unfortunately, and he ended up pointing a weapon at officers um, to start that, uh, I guess, uh, suicide uh, attempt. He ended up being shot and we had medics on our team, on our SWAT team at the time, uh, who, so we were, we were to him able to clear everything out a very, very short amount of time. And we were actually able to save his life. And in the end, he ended up getting some help that he needed. And we actually built a pretty good relationship with him to the point where he became a part of our talk that that our two negotiators did around the nation where wow. he would go in and talk with and come back, came back and I've met with him since that opportunity or since that time and uh, it's kind of led to a, an opportunity for us to talk with people and to talk about mental health and about uh, these situations and he was uh, uh, able to move past that very that very sad encounter and and is now doing so much better you know it's so easy for me for to get caught up in the just the the story of that, the narrative of it. And then there's a moment in time, because my, <laughs> my, my brain never stops, I think. When you were relaying that, Steve, the, the part that hit me 
was, and you and I have talked about this, we talked about in the last podcast as well too, is that that vacillation between trying to get engagement relationship based or trying to work with their ambivalence internally. You know, there's that, and I think that's just, I think that's where we're starting to find that where it's going to be the intersection between some of the expertise in law enforcement and negotiations and the expertise in communication from like a motivational wing perspective, looking at the ambivalence. But what struck me when you're talking about it is I just started thinking about different body cam footage that I've looked at and the difference between active shooters that are looking for suicide by cop and active shooters that are actively like on the verge of taking their own life with no assistance from officers, you know, that they're not doing that. And for me, I think where my MI brain goes, and I'm I'm treading lightly here because I, this is unexplored ground, but the first thing I think about is if they want suicide by cop, my brain is like, I can almost guarantee that the ambivalence exists inside of their brain. They don't want to do it. They can't do it. I don't want to take my own life, which is all signs of potential change talk in there. Just when you were talking about it, it's like, okay, where would my brain have gone in trying to have this conversation, find where is that capacity? I know from law enforcement, it's where there's a hook. From motivational thing, it's where is that potential for ambivalence? Where can I shine light or reflect something that they can see there's two sides of their brain that are firing at the same time? And I think that's what's so fascinating. And I don't know if that's true, but that's the first thing my brain goes to, that the difference between wanting to be shot by somebody else versus I'm going to kill you first or I'm going to kill myself and nobody gets a chance to, where I think there's, it feels like there's a, a, a smaller sliver of ambivalence in those instances when it's an active shooter who wants to be shot, I think God, that by definition, is there some modicum of ambivalence that has to exist inside of their brain then? And I think that's the part that it's just, for me, is just fascinating to explore the construct in terms of how do you go in there? And I think that's where, where my, what my sense is, is that when we try to go relationship based, that's not what they want. And that's where they start going more into like, I'm not going to do this game versus working within their mindset of going, can I tease out both sides of where the ambivalence exists? Um, you know, you're just done. I think because what I, I jumped to is I think of how efficient and effective O'Brien was with the individual with mental health addiction issues on the fire escape. And I show that video all the time. And that was one by the time he got him in the back of the, of the car, you know, he said, you know, I didn't want to take my own, I can't take my own life, but I want somebody else to do it because I can't. Um, and I don't want to live anymore. And it's like, I'm like, I mean, literally, if you get out of the context of it, that is just the, the core definition of ambivalence, of deep, deep ambivalence with an individual is, you know, I want to, I want them to take my life, but I can't take my own life, but I'm just tired of the bullshit. I can't take it anymore. And so it's like, oh my gosh, this is where I always want to dive in and go, okay, we're really on a precipice of promising practice of things that from an evidence-based practice perspective, can we explore this and really look at this? But then I think the level of... <laughs> you know, of critical incidents here is just like, you know, how much do we explore? But that's also where promising practice comes from. We're, we're kind of treading new territory at the same time. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are, because you've been inside some of those brains before, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I fully agree, Casey. And I think we have to dissect the difference between um, a individual in crisis who is wanting to hurt himself and not others, and then those who are true terrorist acts that go into schools and just want to cause mayhem that don't exactly. um, have any desire to have, they don't have the ambivalence because they know this is the outcome. This is what I'm going to do. On top of that, I think there's a difference between juveniles and adults when it becomes uh, even suicidal. 
because I think some adults have made the decision and there's nothing we're going to say they've made that decision. They, they might not be able to do it themselves, but they've kind of made that decision where we look at some juveniles who, as we know, their brains aren't fully function. And so they're not complete. And so they're having a hard time with that ambivalence. And a lot of times I look now at every encounter that we have with uh, people in crisis and look through that MI lens of how can we make that connection to get them back to reality versus it's the despair end, you know? And so, but there is a huge difference between those very criminal minded terrorists, I call them, that go into schools and just cause harm because that is what they're going to do. Um, and unless we stop that threat, neutralize that threat, they're going to cause as much harm as possible. Where the Lewis and Clark one, we were yes. able to, to slow it down. He didn't want to hurt anybody else. Ended up, he wanted to hurt himself, but wanted us to do it for him. I think I fully agree with you, Casey, in, in that um, in, in a true Lewis and Clark shooting or other situations where I've negotiated with people who are suicidal on the side of a bridge, most of the time there's ambivalence because they they don't know 100% if they want to do it. They know it's final. And so yes. if we can delve into that and build those relationships and, and get into that, um, can we, and a lot of times we do, pull them back to reality where we can get them the help they need? You know, this is fascinating to me because I just... And I'm just pulling numbers just anecdotally from my own experience. But when you were talking about that, like the terrorist brain side of it, like this is my last day and the ambivalence has been resolved. There is no active ambivalence in that. This today is my last day. It's my last cigarette. It's my last whatever. And this is it. This is a done deal. What my brain went to from my years working in uh, corrections and in, in federal and state corrections is I always would tell people in my experience, so this is anecdotal, and I'm, I'm just wondering if it's where it lands with your experience with it, is for everyone in prison who, by definition, can be diagnosed antisocial personality disorder, right? Or they wouldn't be in prison. I always said about maybe 5% of that population was truly sociopathic with no social conscience. Probably 90 to 95% are people that just did made bad decisions, horrible things should be in prison. There should be consequences, but when they're laying in bed at night, they're like, how the hell did I get here? Or, you know, and missing things and God, that was stupid. And, you know, so there's that, the remorse that happens, but I think it was really difficult for me because I always, you know, my social worker side is that there's always that redeemable. There's something inside that I can find. But for the years that I worked in prison, I, there was that five to 10% that was like, that kind where you go home and you just don't feel good in your stomach. Like it just feels like there's that kind of evil out there that there is no social conscience there. It really is. If they're released, it's going to be mayhem. And there's just no remorse. What's nowhere. There's no even semblance of remorse anywhere inside of their experience. Um, it's more of a sense of fulfillment than remorse. Um, and it's not from a trauma perspective. It's just from a, a brain perspective from my experience. And I think that's what I think of, and again, I don't know the numbers. That's just what anecdotally I always felt was about 10 to five to 10% was truly sociopathic. And I wonder if that's the same thing with the terrorists, but I don't know that that mentality that when they wake up in the morning, last cup of coffee, last cigarette, and I'm going to do damage before I step out and nothing, nothing is going to stop because from a MI perspective, there is no ambivalence that exists um, when you're looking at that. And so I think, I think that's another part of it too 
but I don't know which, and then there's the social media and the media side of it, even, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, then there's the, how it's presented to the public. So I don't know because it tends to be the worst of the worst are the ones we always get to see splattered on the screen, but it's those, then I keep thinking about where is that percentage of people where things are reconciled, but either law enforcement doesn't get credit for it, or it's just another day at the office for negotiations where there is just massive ambivalence inside of these individuals. So I'm just, I have to throw all that out there because my brain was running through the MI lens and thinking about where is that modicum of ambivalence. And when you said that, I know it's going to be a terrorist act, my gut automatically went to, oh, there is no ambivalence there. They're, they are going to take as many people as they can take out and they know they're going to. So what I'm just going to throw that out back to you, what your thoughts are and how you you deconstruct that. Yeah. You know, I think your numbers are probably pretty close, maybe, maybe a little high, but I, I do think there's a continuum of, there's the, and I don't even, I even hate to say their names because I don't like to throw to, to publicize them, but the John Wayne Gacy's, the Bundy's that are yeah. just criminal. They're, they're evil. They're just yes. evil people and they have the opportunity to sit down with John Wayne Gacy or whatever. I'm not going to change what he, what his mind is and what he wants to do and what, where he gets his satisfaction from. That's but, exactly what I do with, mine goes to Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, that's, that's my Hannibal Lecter is just like, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care. There's no semblance of ambivalence inside of there. None. Yeah. No, it's how no, do you get this, this end goal. Yeah, no, totally. But I do think there are many people that are currently in prison. There are people who um, unfortunately will become terrorists of some kind or something that life, um, whether it be social media, whether it be um, family things, maybe how they grew up, just their environment some of that plays a role in putting them in a situation that is just the tinder that sets them off. And then they're down the road going, I can't believe I did that. I didn't see myself doing this where the other ones know good well that, yes. that what they're doing and, and, and how, I mean, they're just evil is what it comes yes. down to. So I would say that 5%, um, you know, being that, that sociopath person that you talk about is, is probably a, a pretty legitimate number just you know, from just my experience, 26 years in law enforcement, um, just for the people we deal with. See, and that's the thing I think that's so, I mean, because we keep peeling back layers and peeling back layers. And I think that's where it gets so fascinating. I, I think one of the things I want to say too, knowing this is a podcast and if people are listening to it, I think because we are really looking at a lot of unexplored ground. I mean, some of this ground has been explored so many times, but I think the things you and I are talking about are starting to explore things in just a different way. Like you were talking about last time, you can see more convergence than divergence between, you know, the behavioral health side, just with co-deploy and law enforcement, where people tend to think that there's more of a divergence there. But I think there's this piece of it about what are we trying to get people to understand in terms of how the brain works and this intervention, or how do we communicate in a way to be effective? That what struck me, I remember, I think it was the first series that I did for law enforcement ever. And it was, there was tension in the room. People were listening, but there was tension in the room. But I remember, God, he was the nicest guy in the long run. <laughs> People were pretty, not as, they were just present, um, but guarded, rightly so. But the one I wanted to talk about is, I think he was, I don't know if he was with, uh, I, if he was with internal affairs at the time, but he's doing a lot of the investigations. And he said, he just became really transparent and just really a nice way, actually. It wasn't confronted, but he said, you know, I, I guess my biggest concern is I'm going to see you sitting across from me um, in a courtroom testifying how I didn't do this and it cost somebody their life. 
He goes, that, I, I just have to throw that out there because that's part of where my anxiety is coming from. And I, I think I want to be transparent about that right now, too, because we really are talking about things that have never fully been explored. So there's no expertise around it. So I don't want people to think that we're saying, oh, this is the right way to do it. What we what I think we I think why I love this conversation is because we're kind of piecing together different realities and seeing where can we build a better mousetrap? Where can we do something that's better outcomes for all people? So I just I feel like a need to say that because I want people listening thinking, well, why isn't everybody doing this? Or this is what they said, or this is what it shows. And it's like this truly is kind of the dawn of a different way of looking at things bringing some of the old ways of doing things that we know are effective to the table. So I think that's partly what I want to say when I move into this is as we start to explore this, nobody can say what was right or wrong. I can't, I couldn't sit in front of somebody and say they should have used MI. This would have solved the problem because I think that's asinine <laughs> for me to think that I could know that. But I think what's so fascinating is, as we continue to explore where is that modicum of ambivalence can make a profound difference in this outcome. Because we know the data is so clear. If we can work through that ambivalence, we know the data around if you give more oxygen to change talk, the person talks more about change. The data is really clear about that. When we, when we use affirmative statements or self-affirming statements, the data is really clear that the brain starts to go there. It wants to have the self-affirmation inside. So, And that's with individual statements that can come out of our mouth. So that's where I start to peel it back from when you've got a brain that we're saying, where is that modicum of ambivalence inside the brain and how do we get some oxygen in there to see, can we expand on that ambivalence and then utilize that ambivalence to move more towards the change talk side? And that's just a different mindset. It, I think where I get fascinated, I'm going to throw it back to you, Steve, on this is I think that's my fascination between like reading the Chris Voss stuff, you know, never split the difference, looking at negotiations mindset, and there's some parallels, but there's almost a fundamental mindset difference between the two. I was even thinking about that when I did the training last week or this week with, with uh, Kern Caps group was that it's like, okay, you're looking for that hook. You're looking for the hook. You're looking for the hook. You're looking for the hook. And, and I think the construct is really similar to where we're looking for that modicum of ambivalence, but it's almost like to, to get the win and get the safety, which is good. And I'm thinking about where do we get to that resolution of ambivalence? We can set up for longer term change or a warmer handoff to another system or, or service. So, but that's just my take on it as I deconstruct it. So what are, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Well, first I want to, I'll address kind of like the part where you said there was a, you know, somebody who would, who was kind of, you know, guarded a little bit guarded at the training. I think the law enforcement world, um, we're a different animal, as you know, and it's, <laughs> God, I do. Our mindset, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> our, my, our mindset is always like, you know, because everything that they worried that you would do, we get every time with a defense attorney, right? They're going to break right. everything we did and say, here's the cause of this. You know, there's, there's, there's a correlation between the outcome because of what you did or what you didn't do. And so yeah. a lot of times every, every event we're a part of, we've got to have a game plan of, um, we want to do everything correctly, but sometimes even if we do everything correctly, something bad could happen. Uh, like the, the Lewis and Clark shooting, right? We did, we, we negotiated, we, we had a good report. Everything was going smooth. In the end, um, that young gentleman, unfortunately pushed our hands and, and a bad outcome became of it. Right. And so um, you're, we're always kind of playing that, that mindset. So I, I understand where they come from knowing you though, um, as a person, I know I can easily tell them that's not the case with Casey or with this training. It's, this is truly um, a wave of the future and how it's helping not, not only law enforcement, but, but relationships with, with, with family, with everything. Right. And so um, that piece, I felt like I needed to, to touch on. 
Um, but I do, uh, yeah, I, I do, I do agree with you, Casey. It's changing in a good way with law enforcement and the courses and the mindset and the um, dealing with people in crisis and, and looking back into um, what we call the hooks, um, you know, in negotiations or somewhere to to basically uh, alter that person's game plan. And ultimately, that's what we want to do. Whether it is through, you know, getting a hook into them or 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 getting into that ambivalence and and getting them to realize that they can um, make make a decision today, step off the ledge with us, the, the, the ledge or, or put down that weapon or, or do whatever. It's changing how not only law enforcement, but many uh, relationships can be impacted by it through, you know, the, the MI piece that, that you teach and that you bring to the law enforcement side. Um, and it's, it's, it's a teamwork that we're, we're looking at, right? We don't have all the answers. And, and as you have stated, MI is not going to work in every situation. You can, no, you, you know, when there's no ambivalence, right? Yes, absolutely. And so, yeah. And so, but in those situations where, where it can work, we need to be proficient and, and, and have yep. the, the skills to make that hook. Like we talked about um, with Jan, where, where Jan and I had that, uh, that situation where I was able to, to, to chat with her during a mock crisis in one of your, your trainings. Um, we just need to, we need to continue to build those skills so that when we can do it and it is available and we can make that difference, we do it and, and we don't lose that person. Um, so yeah, it, I, I fully agree with you though. I, I got so many things going through my brain. The, I, I, it's fascinating to me with my own ambivalence about, I am such a bleeding heart social worker. I mean, I love what I do and I, I know what a bleeding heart social worker. And then I hear myself... <laughs> not defending law enforcement, but I just want to, I want people to have perspective. And when you were just talking about what struck me, Steve, is that I think what people don't fully give credence to is how many people, people won't allow themselves to have a camera strapped to their chest and watch people work, have them work all day. If there's things where they could get in trouble, a physician is not going to do that. A surgeon's not going to do that. A social worker won't even record a session to get feedback on their motivational interviewing skills. Doctors won't do it. Nurses don't want to do it. Nobody wants to be monitored. And law enforcement doesn't have a choice. And so everything can literally be deconstructed and criticized. And with that, I just want people to understand as professionals, if that's what your life was, are there times that you're going to stutter step in what you do from what you normally do because you know people are watching? And those microseconds can be life and death microseconds. I don't think people have an appreciation of how complex that is. And then you have 50 different experts in a courtroom saying why what you did was wrong when you're a human being and your brain can only t absorb so much data based on the training that you've had. So I think that's, you know, you've all the, all these different things and I'm not going right or wrong, good or bad, any of that. I just want people to understand and have perspective how complex this is. And I said this last time, I'm going to say it again, especially since people are listening to this are usually more on the MI side of the world. Most of us don't even want our recordings to be listened to, to get feedback on if we're doing good in motivational interviewing. Even if we're role-playing a situation where it's not life and death. People get nervous about just doing a role play about, should I go back to the gym or not? And submitting that because they were afraid to get feedback. Like something as benign as that compared to the situations we're talking about with life and death and 
no choice about this is going to be recorded. So I just, I just feel a profound need to say that again, like I did last time in last podcast around this. I want people to have perspective and it's not for, I think because if we're in MI, then there has to be some sense of empathy there. Right. <laughs> so it's just like, yeah, so there's no, I have no sympathy for Steve. Um, but a profound amount of empathy. So I think that's the thing that I think of is just that think of the complexity of what we're talking about here. And when you hear Steve talk about, you know, a terrorist mindset where the, the intention like Las Vegas, the intention is to do as much death and destruction as possible. Um, and so it's just like, that's fairly easy for us to say, yeah, that's, that's a, that's not an MI based situation. That is a isolate and, you know, take him out. I mean, that's just, there's, there, that is stop this immediately kind of perspective. It's just, I think it's just fascinating. We have the capacity to have these conversations about where, where does that potential for ambivalence exist? And I know some of the, the curiosity from some of the MI purists are going to be, well, how can you even use this in law enforcement if there's not a specific target behavior? And what I keep thinking about is when we get inside of that ambivalence, you know, there could be multiple target behaviors, but I just think from a law enforcement perspective is a target behavior is just that no one gets hurt, you know, that the person gets the help that they need that that's, you know, they're pretty good social target behaviors that we want to work towards. It's not, are they going to quit smoking or keep smoking? Um, and I think this, it pushes the motivation side of the house, I think, to really start to expand because we get so target behavior focused on how do we help people resolve ambivalence in a way that gets to a positive outcome, even if we can't drill it down to one specific target behavior. So just I, I keep wanting to throw out context when I think about the audience and and the ways that, you know, so many people that are interested in motivation, the way their brains tend to absorb this. Well, Casey, yeah, I you know, as we're wrapping up and everything too, that, you know, you talked about the target behavior also, you know, we at IFIOC like to talk about the focus mountain, people's values. I also think there's a little bit of a difference between a target behavior and someone's values. Sometimes people, well, not sometimes, people want to live in alignment with their values. And so you might not necessarily have a target behavior, but you do have opportunity to explore people's values and the alignment or misalignment that is there. Well, and mm -hmm. when you say that, Tammy, the, the first thing I think of is, and it's how, when we're talking about this in this context, is how quickly our brains get sucked down into the trees of just the day-to-day, day-to-day operations and day-to-day monotony. And, and the more we just, the more the trees close in on our brain, the, the further away our brain can see the top of the mountain where our core values are. And I think these are some of the individuals we're talking about. I, I think the one that, the LC one. And so just, just how quickly the, the trees can close in, or if you're born, in a system like Steve was talking about, if it's the family of origin or through mental health issues or just, you know, whatever going on with brain chemistry or environment, the way those trees kind of close in on us, as far as what we think are the most important things, we do start to lose perspective. And I think, I don't even want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but then I keep thinking about that same thing from all of the people in the situations, like almost every weekend now where there's, where there's active shooting is that I think with social media, how those trees just close in around our brain and we can't see the forest through the trees, literally. I mean, they just, just all these issues are so wrapped around their face that they lose sight of who they are and what their ultimate values and goals are. And and the reason why, Tammy, I agree with that 100%, I, I remember John and I were at a, the Mint, uh, a, one of the international Mint forums, all the Motivation Network of Trainers. Um, and it was the first time that I heard uh, Steve Rolnick say, you know, 
maybe we emphasize target behavior a little bit too much and maybe we're not looking enough at values. And John and I literally like immediately looked at each other and said, oh my God, this is, this is what we've been teaching for probably six years now and kind of felt like we were outliers because there was so much pressure about, no, there has to be a target behavior. It's not MI. And here's Stephen Rolnick, one of the, you know, joint creators of motivational interviewing saying, you know, I think target behavior is really important, but I think we're missing where is that deeper motive as well too. And that's where values, we need to start looking at human values as well too. And then I, then I translate that all the way back into this conversation with Steve going, we just know there's a there there, you know, we know that there's things we can continue to grow and evolve and explore and expand in not only our knowledge base, but our skill set on, on trying to work towards all of us trying to get towards better outcomes for everyone. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention too, with the training that uh, we were doing this week as well, that I was conducting for the values piece of it with the focus mountain that you're bringing up, Tammy, and what you're talking about, Casey, of being more values based. There's a lot of resonance around it, and it's a particular skill. And uh, even after we went through these three day um, components of it and went through activities, it really is one of these things that we get so sucked into the target behavior of this particular thing that it's it's so hard. And I could only imagine, Steve, in, in your situations where crisis is on the table um, to not make it about a particular outcome. Because I think of, you know, this person is seeking more connection in their life and not feeling so alone or feeling um, wanting to have some relief and some peace of mind from the constant whatever in their head or abuse they're facing or whatever's going on. They're, they're, they're seeking something uh, yeah. if there is that ambivalence in there and there's motivation in there. It's to then recognize and say things like one way you're thinking is to take your life that brings peace of mind. And that's something that you've thought about a lot. And you know, there are other ways like Casey, you referred to that O'Brien video we show in the uh, trainings with being on the bridge. You know, you realize there are other ways to go about your values or you've thought about other ways to go about your values, you know, imparting these in reflections or having questions is just to do that and then not attach yourself to the, the particular outcome of them not jumping, them not following through. At a certain point, you got to move to compliance in the situations. It sounds like, Steve, you were talking about where all of a sudden, okay, I got to make a judgment call that is this something I just got to come in and, and make the decision, right? But leading up until that point, can you try to be values based and open to different ways to get up that mountain to have their their values get met that's just a very heady conceptual thing versus when you're in the moment being scrutinized with your body cam footage uh i just want to honor that as well but there seems to be a practical there there that seems to be important when when you get into the communication of it so i don't know how much steve that resonates for you or how much you've done that with your own skill set. But I would say that's something, Casey, that I have seen people resonate with a lot are the values. Yeah, I agree with you, John um, and Tammy on the on the values piece. And I think when when people are in crisis, whether whether you're a 17 year old guy or gal that can't see past, you know, very myopic, can't see past what's happening today, or you're a, a 50 year old person who's battling um, a, a disease and their world is closing in and you can't see that forest through the trees. They can't break out of there. Our goal in law enforcement, I think, in, in, and especially in, the, in your world, is to 
clear those trees, help yeah. them find that piece where they can look past this very nearsighted right now, this is, needs to happen to fix it, to, to, to help them maybe clear those trees and weeds out a little bit to say there, there is something to look forward to and to, to kind of help clear that mind. And I think that's where um, MI comes in because it's teaching us how to move past that ambivalence and to, to get that hook and to really help them um, see that there is a future and that it's not just uh, the negative right now. And, and, you know, I, I, we see this in people in crisis, um, in, in mental health crisis, but we also see it in, in, like we talked about, patients who are going through cancer and going through other things, it yeah. overwhelms their brains. And yes. unfortunately, we can use this type of, of training and tools in life. It's not just critical incidences like that, right? Excellent. Yes. Well, and, and what you're talking about when they're overwhelmed in life, this is where I get into the, the brain science side from a trauma-informed side is, and when our brain gets overwhelmed, where does it go? It drops down into our reptilian brain, which is what? Fight, flight, or freeze. Like, I mean, I, what you just articulated is the definition of when people are stressed and overwhelmed, what does the brain do? It goes into survival mode, and survival mode is to usually one of those, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, which that is exactly what we're talking hijack, about. Right? We, we Absolutely. call it a medieval hijack for a reason. Right. Yes. It's boom. It's taken over. We now, you guys, us, have to find a way to get that, take that back, that hijack back, right, of that, of exactly. that reptilian brain. And I think this is what's so interesting, or the irony in it, is because what we know, what the data shows, is when people feel deeply, deeply, authentically heard and understood, that high level of empathy, high accurate, not sympathy, not not the compassion even side of it, but what is deep, accurate communication of empathy, active empathy, accurate empathy? That's where that brain starts to relax a little bit because it doesn't have to be on the defense then uh, when it feels heard and understood. And when it's not on the defense, what does it want to do? It, start, it wants to start to explain what the struggle was, which is where the ambivalence exists. And I think that for me, peeling that level back is like that mindset is so different than where's the hook? Where's the hook? And I think mm -hmm. this is where we keep kind of pushing a little bit further, the ball a little bit further down the field in terms of, yeah, mm -hmm. that is a different way, a different mindset with it. Um, yeah. and, and the last thing I want to wrap up with that kind of dovetails with this is, John, one of the things that you said that really, again, I think it's where we're pushing the ball down the, the field a bit more um, because it is such a, a fascinating concept to deconstruct is when we talk about detaching from the outcome, I literally, I can really, I can remember where Captain Cummings was sitting and Dan Waters was sitting in the room at IFIOC when we're talking about, you know, working on detach from the outcome. <laughs> and both of them said, Casey, we are attached to the outcome. We don't want them to jump. <laughs> like we are. And I said, I, I, I know that. And I know that that instinct is we are attached to the outcome, but that in some ways can contaminate the situation as well too. Because then you're more about, what you're trying to get for the outcome versus trying to be that every modicum of energy that you put there, every iota of energy you put there is one less capacity for you to be in that person's reality to reduce the resistance piece of it. So there's this almost shadow tension going on of being mm -hmm. attached to the outcome that makes it harder to let go. It's almost like this rubber band that keeps you from leaning forward and reaching out a little bit further to get inside of their experience when you're holding on to the outcome, the outcome that you can't control. And again, this is why it's pushing the ball even further into the darkness a little bit, because it's like, yeah, that's really easy to say when you're not sitting in that situation. Um, you know, and I think this goes back to the humanity of what we're talking about, of how complex these issues really are. Yeah, you know, and, and that's an interesting point, Casey, in that 
I think it, it shows it like just do it. I go back to that same training we did with Janet IFIOC and I was attached to the outcome because I felt, I felt Jan's pain, even though it was fictitious. Yes. She was, she, it was, it was not, it was, she was not going to jump off a bridge yet. I could feel her pain and struggle and she could feel when I made a connection. hundred percent. So real is that right? I mean, so there, there, there's a, there's a human piece to that, that having that connection, but you're exactly right in that sometimes there's outcomes that we're not going to control, but if we can kind of try to start working out that peeling away that, that those layers of the ambivalence, um, that's where it, it happens, but there's a human side of it too. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think the thing I want to wrap up, God, now there's 15 more podcasts I want to do. Um, but <laughs> as soon as you say that, Steve, oh my God, my brain goes straight to that moment is when I can almost guarantee if we had your brain hooked up is your mirror neurons lit up at that moment in time. And I wonder the distance between the mirror neurons lighting up, which is where, where accurate empathy comes in. When we know that we can almost step inside the experience of another human being, we have the brain capacity to do that with, with, you know, with, with the way that our brain is structured and how far distant that is from our need to control the situation, which is going to be probably closer to the own fight, flight, freeze reaction of trying to get them off the edge is going to be hovering between that really smart part of the brain and that Fuck, if something goes wrong here. This is not going to bode well. And I think that because I think that's where the whole team was at. It was on that precipice of, yeah, we get this empathy, we get this reflective listening, but you're the one who stepped off into the, I think into the mirror neuron and just went, whoa, this feels real. And she felt the realness there. And it's like that to me, that's where the synapses jumped the gap um, and the connection happened. And I think that is different than trying to control outcome. The, I, to me, I, I, not even in law enforcement, I think in behavioral health, healthcare, I think in all of our professions, that I think is the new frontier of how do we explore the brain on that level and how do we maximize that to improve outcomes? And is it, is it born ironically from that depth of empathy um, to get that connection, to get somebody off the edge? which is different than finding a hook to pull them off the edge. Sure. Sure. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Love this. Guy. I can't even thank you enough. This is my brain hurts now. <laughs> so, yeah. so, oh my God. That's really big, I, I really do think this is going to be something we do quarterly. Um, just mm-hmm. there's so many things we can talk about, but I think the law enforcement thing is just so prevalent in our mm-hmm. world right now. Um, yeah. I, I've got a thousand things going on and I know we need to wrap up. So yeah. Yeah, I know we need to wrap up too, so I won't uh, continue on on the, the many thoughts that I could uh, add in here as well and, and riff off of with, with you all. So Steve, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and joining us. And yeah, it sounds like we'll be getting to do this again if you'd be open to it and just getting to learn more of your experience and all that you bring to the table. Just thank you so much. Yeah, I just thank you guys too for the opportunity to partner with you guys. I mean, not not just me with you three today, but law enforcement with your world, right? Because that's what ultimately we want to have the tools to help our people. And so um, just this relationship um, has got to expand. And, and, and that's what we're doing here at the Spokane Police Department with IFIOC and, uh, and Casey's group. And so we just appreciate the opportunity to continue to, to build upon that relationship. It's 100% mutual. I can tell you that. Okay. Steve, if people wanted to connect with you in one way or another, what would be the best, best way to do that? Yeah, through our through our public relations um, here at the Spokane Police Department, uh, uh, Director Julie Humphreys is the uh, is kind of in charge um, of that. But we 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 deal with uh, you know different entities that way, and so by all means. 
Great. Thanks again, Steve. Yep, my pleasure. All right, take care, everyone. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Communication Solution Podcast. As always, this podcast is all about you. So if you have questions, thoughts, topic suggestions, ideas, please send them our way at Casey at ifioc.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y at ifioc.com. For more resources, feel free to check out ifioc.com. We also have a public Facebook group called Motivational Interviewing Every Day. We have an amazing blog and we have lots of communication tips on our website. In addition to all these amazing resources, we do offer online public courses on our website on motivational interviewing and effective communication strategies. Thanks for listening to the Communication Solution by IFIOC.